hello and welcome to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. I'm Emma Rose. In this episode, you're going to hear the best bits of our show from Selena Gordon and Matt Abbott. Yeah, we've been dipping into the archives and we've chosen some of our favourite clips from 2020. Um, we've got some live performances, we've got some live interviews, we've got some of our favourite recordings that were sent in. Um, yeah, it's just a celebration really of quite an interesting year. Um, and from me, you'll be hearing my Cold War Steve interview, which I did in the summer, which was really exciting at the time, and I'm still pleased with it now, hence you're hearing it again. And um, you'll be hearing from Hetty Judah, whose book, Frida, that she spoke about um, in uh, the beginning of the uh, spring, I think, on the show, is um, out now to buy through Lawrence King Publishing. So you can hear her talk about that. Nice. I mean, of all the years to have started, I know we've said this a few times on the show before, but to think that this time last year we'd just done a pilot. It's, That's crazy. Yeah, it's mad what we've put together, really. It is, it really is. And I feel like, especially through lockdown, through this kind of, as we keep calling it, very unique year, the fact that we've managed to pull it together and I think share people's experiences throughout the year is really lovely. I think people have said to me how wonderful it is to be able to hear poetry about what's been happening now throughout the years I mean literally every week was different every it's been new just endless new stuff <laughs> and to hear people reflect on it is really wonderful yeah totally and also um one of the things that I've picked out was uh, the interview and performance from Maria Ferguson back in March and oh, we're all we're all chatting because this was like the week before lock, the first lockdown and we're all sort of chatting about what Soho's like and sort of going oh I wonder how long it'll last and it's just like oh god oh no <laughs> we had no idea <laughs> yeah it's weird it's weird but that's it we're right in the height of it like we're in Soho on like the 13th or 14th of March in the middle of it it's mad to think really it is but, it um, is I just remember looking through the window of the studio and seeing lots of people who'd come down to London for the day yeah dressed up and um thinking this isn't the best time to visit no i know so yeah it's uh it's fascinating really um the first track that we've got is by rooks because rooks was our first guest for the pilot back in november so yeah. it's a rooks single called red and white blood cells which is a, a great tune to get us started and then straight after that it's the interview with scarlet sabet from oh, february wonderful. yeah um, scarlet that was such a great um, uh, she came and performed for us, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Cool. So, let's get started. Uh, as I said, now we have uh, the latest track from Rooks. Will you forgive me? You can't trust my sense of direction. Will you forgive me? I can't trust my Cause it's you and me and red and white blood cells It's between you and me and red and white blood 
we're here mostly to mm. talk about your new album, Catalyst. Now, mm. it's just such a beautiful production. Thank it's you fantastic. So much. And made in collaboration with your partner, Jimmy Page. It's just absolutely beautiful. The sonic landscapes, the beautiful language. It's oh. just, and there's so much theme and so, so yeah. many themes and feelings in there. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the making of the album? Can you tell me a little bit, like, I mean, because I know you, you, you're very prolific. You've got a lot of poems. So how yeah. did you choose those those poems to go on that album? That's a really good question. I think Jimmy always felt like we were going to do something and he said we're going to do something in like 2014. So I always had it in the back of my mind. Um, but the kind of the way it came out, like you said, the sonic landscapes, that was his decision. And obviously he's a guitarist, so I think a lot of people thought, oh, you could do something with his music because that was so obvious he wanted to subvert that. And in terms of the tracks, I think they're kind of the ones like Fifth Circle of Hell, I wrote in 2016, that was about the refugee crisis. And, you know, my dad I'm, is uh, is from Iran, so I'm, I'm a daughter of a refugee. You know, he didn't, it didn't start out that way. He was studying architecture in Italy and, and um, came to this country, met my mother, but then, you know, the landscape over there changed. So that was something that I've performed since I've written, I've performed it, performed it almost every poetry reading and it, and it, that was kind of one which I, we didn't even discuss it. Like it was a given, it was going to go on. And again, the thing of living and working, and Dickie must have that with you, but he's probably the first person that hears what you've written, hears it in its early inception. I wrote that. Jimmy had a meeting, and I texted him. I was like, wait, come here. I think I've written something. And I read it out to him. He's like, oh, read it again. And so he was there as soon as I had it. And it was from watching the news and seeing the jungle, Calais, and, and all of that. And so it was kind of, I think, the ones on Catalyst, the poems we included are kind of special milestones and hallmarks of points in my artistic life and also personal life of falling in love the love poems obviously the relationship I'm in and then the first track rocking underground that that I wrote I think 2012 2013 and that was being you know that's the side of being an artist in London that's hard feeling mm. oppressed in a big city any big city where it's London New York San Francisco or whatever where you're chasing this thing, it's your dream, but it's the day-to-day -day reality. It's like, can be impressive and mind-numbing. And it was being on the district line <laughs> on a Sunday evening. I was reading Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. I was like, oh, this is beautiful. This is not my reality. And I put the book down and I wrote this and it just came out with the rhythm of the train. And, you know, I was just a bit despondent. My computer had broken. It's like, oh, how am I going to figure <laughs> this out? Get another one. Yeah. And it was just, this came out. And it's still such an honest thing and it's funny. Because well, let's, um, let's, yeah, let's, yeah, play, yeah. let's play the track and then we'll come back. Before I describe it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here we go. City rat dressed in black, worn down underground, trying to block out the pain, the thoughts that make you go insane, that crawl inside your brain when you weren't looking, distracted by hunger and fame, and the simplicity of your day-to-day -day pain, until you wake up, look in the mirror, realise you're not the same. You keep separating your brain, but you try to assimilate, continue to be the same in your own unique way. Jump on the great city train, give up your seat, get on your knees and exclaim, all hail, king of all things the same. Sit back down, sit yourself back down, put your brain back down, back to sleep, hush your sound, because your talk's too loud for things above ground. So let the rhythm rock you, carry you down, back underground, but it all smells the same. The girls are so pretty, they all look the same. So don't blame your brain, don't explain, don't talk. All the sounds underground make the same sense, no sense. They don't carry a sound, so just keep rocking underground. 
I'm now going to share some work from Inua Elams. Born in Nigeria, Elams is a UK-based poet, playwright and performer who's written for the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National Theatre and the BBC. His latest play, an adaption of Chekhov's Three Sisters, set in Nigeria, is on at the National Theatre until the 19th of February. The actual is Elam's fifth poetry release and first full collection. After 13 fairy negro tales with Flipped Eye and Candy Coated Unicorns and Converse All Star, which is also out with Flipped Eye. I'm really excited that he's recorded this for us. Here is an exclusive, exclusive piece from the actual, and this is Fuck Batman. <laughs> The original source of the virus causing coronavirus disease 2019 is believed to be bats, as in some other coronavirus pandemics. B! Now, a new study proves that the fierce immune responses that allow bats to host viruses without getting sick may in turn drive those viruses to spread more quickly inside them. Banks! Ooh. You have to hear this. You just have to. Ooh. Come, 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 come. So when the viruses jump to other mammals with average immune systems, including humans, they wreak deadly havoc. The researchers infected bat cells with virus and matched their experiments with mathematical models. The models show this faster spread rate countered by the bat immune response. Next now step, you a more me. formal model of virus evolution and bat immune systems to better understand the pathology upon spillover to other animal and human hosts. See? Bats? All these people because of the winged rats someone should do something what about the bats yeah like a wealthy billionaire should is this like, about go batman out... again no i was actually thinking about because your Gates. obsession with him is weird it's not about the dark knight <laughs> Inura, you need to stop putting your faith in extremely privileged white men the batman uses his privilege to help people no the batman uses his privilege to weaponize his childhood fantasy and his white savior complex in tight. No, his parents were killed. He tries to stop that happening to anyone. They were innocent victims innocent. who were shot. His father was a billionaire who used his wealth and political connections to eliminate his enemies. He was not innocent. He created a power vacuum which his son inherited nice. and uses to cast a shadow over Gotham, frightening everyone. He frightens people for a reason, uses fear as a weapon because when he was young, he fell into a cave and got scared and, and learns it's from it. The legacy and cycle of violence. Any decent psychology student will tell you that a high proportion of abusers were victims of abuse. Batman is abusing civilians. What? Yet he got scared, and so he scares. Psychological trauma 101. The thing is, he's aware. He actually knows all this, and still he carries on with billions. Billions. No, he's more nuanced a than A billionaire, the... you know. Hmm. To make that much money? Do you know how many people his father must have exploited? His boots on the neck of every citizen. Instead of funding public health programs that focus on rehabilitating criminals and crime prevention, better education for children, and after-school programs for the at-risk ones, his son swings around in leather, beating up the poor or intellectually disabled who were driven to crime. Yes, but fair. And, and the only reason why he lets half his face show is so police officers know he's a white man. No, no. As if Bruce Wayne was Barack Williams, he'd have been killed a long time ago. I... I yeah. Oh, I never saw it like that. Bruce Wayne would not help. No? No. 
This is his fault. What? The virus. Well, no, he's, he's not real. But if he was, right? Or if the virus was in the comics, he still wouldn't help. So Gotham is a nickname for New York. So if it happened as it did in real New York, then yeah, prob probably not. Fuck. Fuck him. Fuck Batman. Batman? Yeah. No, you mean Bruce Wayne? Him too. He's supposed to be able to help. It's supposed to... All those comics promised that if... What? In comics, they promised. Batman? Yes! The promise was, should one fall into a cave of bats? Should one be engulfed by hundreds of beaten wings? Should one be beaten, scratched, or bitten? One would emerge half human, half invincible enough to <laughs> sharpen fear down to a tight tooth weapon with which to gnaw the criminal urban underworld down to poppy nothings protecting us all. <laughs> what are the you promise about? was should an animal's essence seep into a child. Knowing what damage loose power brews, he would accept himself as host, his body a fleshy petri dish to guide its mutation to goodness. Instead, the promise turned ravenous. Yeah, I'm Left yeah. from host to host, country to country, blood to blood, its million teeth chewing through our simple lungs. We closed down our offices. It hung on our clothes. We fled from cities, it clung to our cars. We stayed in bed, it came for our dreams. A curdled crown, a rank coronation, a crude corroding of our inner sanctums. Our public spaces, our minute planning, our mapped out futures, horoscopes and forecast, the dark parts of star charts, all emptied out to an assiduous stillness, the promise gorging on our numbed lives our startled terror and when the promise retreated it left its fangs in disguise its claws in our pockets its foul breath huffed between us in shocking lines its warning to return should we seize vigilance to claim more from the survived okay what have we got coming up next matt uh, next up, we've got a live recording by a poet called Tori Agarbo. Um, this was recorded at the Livewire Birmingham event at Verve Poetry Festival back in February, which feels like about 500 years ago now. Um, and the reason I've picked that is because my record label, Nymphs and Thugs, we've recently drawn our late, latest series of Livewire events to a conclusion. Um, it's lasted nearly a year. It was only meant to be about nine months. We had four big regional events in Manchester, Bristol, Birmingham and Colchester, and then four residency nights in Leeds. And it's been our biggest series of events to date. There's loads of amazing content online, including videos and photos, and some really great recordings like this one from Toria, um, and the poem is called Good Enough. We sit in a circle, me and these lads, these tattooed, lassoed scallywags, and I know them quick as a click. Oh, cause these are the lads of my youth. If I close my eyes, I'm back in school, back of the class, gobbing off, playing it cool, oh. I'm on the grandstand in the park drinking Mad Dog 2020 before it even gets dark. Because these are the lost brothers of my tribe. Those ones who fucked up and fucked off and ended up banged up inside. We sit and talk, they suss me out and I tell them everything. 
Stretch my heart and mind wide open and tell them you can do this because I'm imperfect too. And here's the best bit in this class. The worse your story is, the better you'll do. They pass around my book and say, rate nice stuff and make me feel accepted. And within five minutes, we establish we are equally respected. They talk about their birds in words never heard about me. Hope to fucking God she'll still be there when I walk free. And they talk in these mad contradictions. This one lad, yeah, will give you his last 20p. Oh, this most generous, generous thief. And he sits fired up to fuck and he tells me he can't feel emotions and I want to make him see. So I nod my head and agree and then try to implant these new thoughts subliminally and tell him, mate, oh mate, oh you can do whatever you want if you believe. And then he tells me why he likes to clean. He tells me why he likes to clean that as a teen, that he did it for his mum and that he made the tea so that she wouldn't get a hiding when a fella got in and then he runs past me this long, loud, fast list of this and then this and then this and then this and then this, expecting that at the end that I must be truly convinced that this lad here, this lad here cannot feel. Tell him that I understand and that all of those things have been kept out to survive. But I tell him that if he starts to write, that slowly and safely it can all come out and that if he'll let himself open just a tiny little bit he might start to feel love once he's cleared out some shit and he sits and frowns and he protests again and I beam back wide-eyed hope and he picks up his pen and that lad opposite is sensible and kind. He lost his baby, then he lost his mind till hate burst from his fists and all over a face. And then two years later, he's got a qualification in counselling and he's grateful for this place. Some of them are. Relieved to have had time to let wounds heal and form scars. And then the lad to my right, he's the one. He's the one that I'll cry about when I'm in bed tonight because some of them get right in your heart and you're not entirely sure why. He's a man with a wide-eyed, dadless sadness of a young boy and I tell him, well done, well done. Until it is embedded so deep that he hears, well done lad, in his fucking sleep. And I tell him, mate, please, please, please replace. Replace those harsh inner words with new ones. Speak to yourself like a child, like I've done after years of bad lad, bad lad, slag, shit, mum. These can be our new ones. We are good enough. 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 There was a boy, a very strange, enchanted boy. Land and sea. 
inside of our but very wise was he and then one day a magic day he passed my way Spoke of many things, fools and kings. This he said to me, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved. Enchanted boy They say he traveled very far Very far Over land and sea A little shy And sad of I Day he passed my way, and though we spoke of many things, fools and kings, this he said to me the greatest thing you'll ever learn. Just to love and be loved in return She's an award-winning Nigerian-born short story and novel writer working in London. Her stories, stories incorporate magic realism and also make use of her West African heritage. Her first novel, Butterfly Fish, won the Benny Trask, Betty Trask Award in 2016. And her story, Grace Jones, won the 2020 Kane Prize for African Writing. And most recently, congratulations, she's the winner of the AKO Kane Prize. She was elected as a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature in 2018. Nudie Branch is a collection of short stories. Offbeat characters are caught up in extraordinary situations that test the boundaries of reality. A love-hungry goddess of the sea arrives on an island inhabited by eunuchs. A girl from Martinique moonlights as a Grace Jones impersonator. Dimension-hopping monks sworn to silence must face a bloody reckoning. And a homeless man goes right back to the very beginning through a gap in time. Nudie Branch is dark and seductive and it's surreal. 
Deal and it's out now with dialogue books. Let's have a little snippet from Nudie Branch. Hi, I'm Irena Sinakoje. I'm reading from my collection Nudie Brank, um, a collection of weird modern day fables. In this story, Mangata, an albino man returns home to Mozambique following the death of his mother. The man who brought a miracle to the small town in northern Mozambique was both remarkable and ordinary. As an albino, he wasn't an unfamiliar sight, although other things indicated he was different. He walked with a certain comfort in his skin that wasn't of the surroundings. Assured, confident, he had a birthmark on his neck which looked like a stem growing from his movements. His nails were painted black, his hands elegant, the fingers long, tapered. His tongue sported a silver ring at the tip, a pink pierced entity darting out readily to abandon his mouth. On the afternoon Terry Madas arrived, it was scorching. He stood waiting at the pickup point near the market, a black god painted alabaster holding his light travel bag. His batik shirt had sweat patches, tan trousers stuck to his clammy thighs uncomfortably. The dust-covered leather sandals he wore felt heavy, he having walked a few miles in the bush to get to this point. He'd done so with trepidation, fear scattering wildfire into his veins as it spread through his limbs. He knew the stories of albinos being persecuted, hunted for the value of their body parts, kidnapped, killed and sold. During the walk, in his mind's eye, he'd seen flashes of cutlasses raised up, bones on the necks of men whispering in the voices of ancestors, the cries of medicine men splintered in his ears. He'd seen blood in the sky and the trees shedding pale skin. He'd arrived at the market gratefully, spat from the torturous bush out of breath. Ten years away and nothing had prepared him for the intensity of being back. The heat, the dusty roads, the shanty houses made quaint by the distance of separation, the slick black bodies rhapsodic in their freedom. He hadn't been primed for the warmth, small bursts of joy, the fear, the feeling of familiarity, the feeling of being foreign, a mouthful of echoes slipping teasingly out of reach. Sweating profusely, he stood, walked to a shaded corner of the shop he decided to wait at, thinking of albinos that had appeared to him through night traffic, hundreds of them, each holding angles of light doubling as rabbit holes. It came to him then, the memory of that night years ago, the thick suffocating heat, sluggish grasshoppers chorusing, mosquitoes hovering around the one stubby shrinking candle in their shack as if drawn to a possible death. Mama Carlos sat snoozing gently by the door to protect him in a ritual that saw her bloodshot eyes close reluctantly, eventually succumbing to the demands of the body, her large bosom rising steadily up and down, the small picture of Christ pinned on the wall above the green mosquito net which swooped down, tiny winged fireflies with far too much gumption zigzagging above their heads, and Christ's robes singed from the blue candle flame that thought it could fly, bending willfully in the heat. 
his eyes temporarily blinded by tiny bloodshot figures taking residence there. Terry on the bed, tossing and turning, the sound of water in the empty petrol can on the floor by his pillow of bunched clothes. Then three men kicked down their door. He saw the glint of blades at Mama Carlos's throat, heard rough urgent orders being issued, Mama Carlos screaming so loudly their response was a backhand slap to her face. Terry shrank back against the wall, powerless, pale and trembling. Necklaces of small bones on the men's necks jangled, their faces partially obscured by handkerchiefs tied over their mouths. The smell of the day's sweat from their bodies mingled with fear in the room was potent. They dragged him to the rusted white truck outside, dumped him in the back, then piled in laughing, the truck screeching away, exhaust pipe smoke curling around the edges of an abduction. They sped off, the truck eventually wound its way around the bush. It was at this point Terry leaped out, running for his life. He ran so fast blindly, an alabaster boy slipped from the world's pocket into the night's cruel playground. He ignored the scratches of wild plants on his legs, the stinging on his arms. The men had left the truck whistling crudely, clicking their fingers to catch him again. A path snaked through the bush, appearing from nowhere, glimmering, rising, rushing, similar to the noise made in their petrol can at home. He ran along the path. He never remembered how he got all the way back to the village. He'd cried in relief at the people gathered holding kerosene lamps, babbling at them frantically, half out of his mind and skin and everything being in the wrong place, their shack uprooted from Mama Carlos's injuries, the girl who'd given him a green banana earlier in the day balancing a basket of bones instead on her head, clicking her fingers, crisis photo tearing through the root of the truck, his face covered with a soiled handkerchief, Mama Carlos screaming into the petrol can, the candle flame growing into a blue-tongued carcass in the bush, and the lines of the night reduced into the shape of a howl beneath tyres crunching on stones. We're now going to hear a snippet from my interview with Maria Ferguson in March, followed by a performance of one of her poems from her collection, All Right Girl. I think it's an incredibly deep and varied and intricately crafted uh, collection. Could you just tell us about the recurring themes and strands in there? Because there are a few that like intertwine and develop throughout the book. Mm, yeah. Um, so there's a strand that um, stems from the title from All Right Girl. Um, All Right Girl. It's different poems with, this, with the same, uh, with All Right Whatever. So it's All Right Girl, All Right Love, All Right Son, All Right Mate. And they're all um, based in pubs and are about the, the pubs that I've um, worked in throughout my life and the people that I've met and that sort of close-knit community and how those people really look out for each other. And um, the first and last poem of the collection is also about pubs and also about gentrification and changing and evolving with, with the world and what's going on, but also sort of having almost grief uh, a sense of loss over um those changes and then there's another uh thread through the book so the 
this <laughs> this is sort of something for me to know not every reader would notice but i like it that the fact that the the 10th poem in the collection is called 10 the 15th is called 15 20 25 30 and they're all um about a friendship so it's about me and my my best friend i've had the same best friend since i was like three years old and um their po each poem is about what our friendship was like at that age so 10 is about when we were 10 in in the playground and then it goes on to secondary school, university, you know, watching her get married, feeling very, very alone, finding love myself. You know, it's just about our evolving friendship over that time. So that's a strand as well. And then there's a lot of body image stuff in there as well. My debut show, that was Fat Girls Don't Dance, was all about body image and had uh, poems in, in the text publication as well. But they were all from a time where I was very unhappy and struggling a lot with my body and and with food and my image and stuff like that so I wanted to write some more poems that are about me now having been on the other side of that mostly and sort of coming to terms with myself and finding peace yeah there's you know there's there's stuff <laughs> I think that's, that's the best advert I've heard for a book really that was amazing um so my last question is uh, you write a lot. A lot of the poems are set in pubs. You love pubs. Um, I do. What would be your, <laughs> what would be your key ingredients for a good pub? Whatever. What if you were going to make a pub from scratch? What oh, would we say this all the time, though, don't we? Because now I'm a bit older. Now I'm into my thirties. I want to sit down. <laughs> I want to sit down. I want a cheap drink. I want good music, not too loud, <laughs> because I want to have a good conversation. Uh, dartboard's always good pool table's always good a good jukebox a pub quiz love a pub quiz there's a pub quiz in the collection yeah poem about a pub quiz we always go don't we on a Sunday yeah I love a pub quiz yeah I love, yeah, I love them I love them Amazing. I'm not, we're not even that good at it are we no. really no we're just I don't like think I'd it. enjoy it if we had a chance of winning yeah um, that's what I like okay and Mer no filament lamps or craft beer just good. just Branded, just, just <laughs> cheap, beer. cheap alcohol. Maria Ferguson's Guide to a Good Pub. Yeah, you know that George Orwell essay that Weatherspoons yeah. was based on. I reckon I should just write one. But yeah. that's quite similar to what he said. What I've yeah, just said. Not too bad. What's your take on the no crisp policy in some pubs? What? I've been to pubs and they won't give you crisps. It's just wasabi peas and things. Oh, we were in a pub like that the other day, weren't we? I just said, have you got any nuts? nuts. Yeah. I just wanted some KP or something, do you know? And then they had these jars and it was like, um, what was it? Like Moroccan spice, Mor sprinkled. Yeah, Moroccan spiced almonds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wasabi peas, those Thai cracker things, which, you know, I do like, yeah. but I'm not paying three quid for no. like a little plastic thing of them. Um, and then there was some spicy uh, cashews or something, which I was uh, tempted by. But I was like, I was in the end, I was just like, you're all right. I'll just have me wine. Other cheap branded nuts are available. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not on with that. And you should definitely have crisps at all times. Yeah, always crisps. Um, would you like to read us a poem? Another poem? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I'll read a body image one, shall I? Because I've just been speaking about it. Um, okay, this is called Miracle. Um, after Jameson Fitzpatrick. This is another thing I've started doing, the after things. It makes you feel like a proper poet, doesn't yeah. it? I've read a poem and written my own. <laughs> okay, Miracle. I woke up and it was a miracle. 
I had nowhere to be, but I got out of bed, and that in itself was a miracle. The tea I made was a miracle, and how I left you sleeping because you looked so peaceful, and the clothes on the floor and the wine still in the bottle, that was definitely a miracle. The cat purring was a miracle. The noise from the builders next door, butter melting on white toast, the toast on my tongue was a miracle. I dressed in front of the mirror and it was a miracle. I took time to look at myself, ran my fingers over my body, my face, my hair, and thought it was beautiful. I smiled and it was a miracle to see myself smile back. Oh. Thank you very much, Maria Ferguson. And your book is available to purchase now if you go to mariaferg.com. Indeed. You can buy it from me or you can buy it from Burning Eye, my publisher, but buy it from me because I get more money. (laughs) (laughs) And coming up next, another one of my top picks and one of my favourites, the fantastic Elvis McGonagall with a new track. Again, Elvis making work during lockdown, keeping, keeping us going with his wry and witty and funny and brilliant and excellent poetry. Elvis McGonagall, Scottish poet, armchair revolutionary. Viva Loch Lomond was published with Burning Eye in 2017 and Complete and Utter Cult is coming soon, also with Burning Eye books. So here's something new from Elvis, Who Do I Think I Am? Out of the box, my brain is bigger than Mr. Sparks. I'm the rebel, renegade mastermind, extra special, like Asda, one of a kind. I don't want to brag, I don't want to boast, but check out my hoodie, I'm sex on toast. I'm a hip hop pet cat technocrat, I'm Jesus Christ in a beanie hat. I never tuck my shirt into my jeans, I'm ahead of my time, like Milton Keynes. I'm a barn villain in a Warmer. Yeah, I'm as hot as chicken coma. Satan loves me, cause I'm diabolical. I'm Rasputin with challenge follicles. I'm Machiavelli, I'm Svengali. I'm an angry egg by Salvador Dali. I'm intergalactic, iconoclastic. Uber, come a match, bro, yo, fantastic. I'm the zookeeper for the Tory chimps. I got all the negatives, bring out the gimps. I'm your uncrowned king, I pull the strings I'm a fly guy, you can't clip my wings I'm above the law, you're beneath my score Gonna park my think tank on your lawn I'm the meat con man with a pandemic plan Gonna sweep the weak into the trash can Gonna get eugenic when push comes to shove I'm Dr. Strangelove's black leather glove I lurk in the murk of your worst nightmare Gonna smash the system like Robespierre I'm the chaos monkey, play it funky When I eat a kid, cat is gonna be chunky I dig intelligence that's artificial The judiciary's whack, they're prejudicial They can't touch me, I do as I please I get my kicks from Thucydides My bitch is rich, she's aristocratic I'm anti-elite Sexy I can see the future, I can see through you. But- 
Feature, ein Superman. Ich fahr nach Durham Town auf der Autobahn. I get it done, I deliver the goods. I dance to Abba in the Bluebell Woods. Strap up mofos at the BBC. I'm the daddy, don't you dare diss me. They call me classic dumb, not classic dick. So fuck you all, I'm a dangerous prick. So, I've been reading a lot recently about social and cultural changes in post-war Britain. One aspect of this has been working class culture in general, and another aspect, more recently, has been black poetry. As we know, the Windrush generation began to arrive in 1948 and had an immediate impact on our cultural and literary scene. So what I've done is, I've picked out a small handful of poets who I'd like to roar about. I'm going to start with James Berry, because he's arguably the first notable poet of the Windrush generation. Uh, born in Jamaica, he settled in the UK in 1948, aged 24. He immediately began to explore the relationship between black and white communities. He captured both the excitement and the tension that came with Caribbean immigrants integration into British society and was famed for blending standard English with Jamaican patois which was repeated a lot over the next uh, couple of decades. Nearly 20 years later he became an early member of the Caribbean artists movement in 1966. Ten years later he compiled Bluefoot Traveller which was an anthology of West Indian poets in Britain. In 1979 his debut poetry collection Fractured Circles was published and then in 1981, he became the first poet of West Indian origin to win the Poetry Society's National Poetry Competition. Probably the most famous work that he was involved in was the 1984 anthology News for Babylon, which was groundbreaking and seen as a breakthrough for a lot of black and international voices into the mainstream literary world. He was made an OBE in 1990 and died in London in 2017. It's also worth mentioning the BBC radio show Caribbean Voices, which launched in 1946 and was essential in terms of giving a platform to a lot of black writers, including poets, both at home and abroad. Beryl Gilroy has been described as one of Britain's most significant post-war Caribbean migrants and was also part of a Windrush generation. She was born in what was then known as British Guyana and moved to the UK in the 1950s, where she became the first black headteacher in London. Her experiences in education led to her writing the memoir Black Teacher, which was published in 1976. She went on to write a series of novels, including her debut Frangipani House, which was published in 1986, Boy Sandwich, published in 1989, and Steadman and Joanna, A Loving Bondage in 1991. Um, and it was in the same year that she published poetry in the form of a collection called Echoes and Voices. Right from the off, one of the most vital aspects of her work was the fact that she wrote from a female perspective. Um, this was extremely rare at the time, uh, particularly for a black woman as well, but she was adamant that she wanted to write from that perspective because that was the world that she knew and why should she compromise by writing from any other perspective? Um, from short stories for children to essays, she won a range of accolades and awards and is hugely loved. Ben Okri is a Nigerian poet and novelist who moved to Britain in 1961 when he was only two years old. He attended primary school in Peckham and then moved back to Nigeria in 1968 where he was exposed to Nigerian civil war. He returned to the UK 10 years later to study literature at Essex University and over this period he experienced homelessness which he said was highly influential on his work. His breakthrough came only two years after that in 1980 with his debut novel Flowers and Shadows. 
He then served as poetry editor for West Africa mag magazine from 1983 to 86 and was a regular contributor to the BBC World Service at the same time. From there, he rose to international acclaim. His best-known work, The Famished Road, was awarded the 1991 Booker Prize. He published new poetry as recently as last year, so he's still going strong. Grace Nichols is a Guyanese poet who moved to Britain in 1977, aged 27. Her debut collection, I Is a Long-Memoried Woman, was published in 1983 and won the Commonwealth Poetry Prize. She's written a series of novels, short story collections for children and poetry collections. Her work is featured on both the AQA and Edexcel GCSE poetry anthologies. In 2011, she was a member of the first ever judging panel for a school's poetry competition named Anthologize, which was spearheaded by Carol Ann Duffy. And she lives in Lewis in East Sussex with her partner, John Agard, who is also a pretty decent poet. Um, <laughs> Earlier on, I mentioned the Caribbean artists movement in the 1960s. Uh, it's important to say that one of the poets who spearheaded that um, was Kamal Brathwaite, who's seen by many as a major voice in terms of Caribbean literature. He received a string of awards and accolades throughout his life, um, published most of his poetry in the late 70s and early 80s, and only died in February of this year. A poet that I've loved since the start of my career, since right at the very start, is Linton Kwesi Johnson. Um, born in Jamaica in 1952, he moved to Brixton when his family, with his family when he was 11, shortly after Jamaica gained independence. Um, his poems first appeared in the Race Today Journal, who also published his debut collection Voices of the Living and the Dead in 1974. He's probably best known for his poetry set to music, which was popular in the late 70s and 80s, i.e. when Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister. His best known albums include Forces of Victory and Making History, and also notable at the time is his 1981 poem, De Great Insurrection, written in response to the 1981 Brixton riots. Uh, he's still going strong, and in 2002, he became the second ever living poet, and the first ever black poet to have a Penguin Modern Classics publication with Me Revolutionary Friend selected poems. His work, influenced by the Jamaican toasting tradition, is seen as a precursor to rap. And finally, linking to the track that we played at the start, Jean Binter Breeze. Uh, Jean is a Jamaican dub poet and storyteller. She was born and raised in rural Jamaica and first visited London in 1985, aged 28. The reason for that visit was an invitation from Linton Kwesi Johnson to perform at the International Book Fair of Radical Black and Third World Books, which was a hugely, hugely influential and important event. It pulled together writers from a wide range of backgrounds and championed a lot of vital political poetry during what were difficult times for a lot of black communities. Part of the drive behind this event uh, was the frustration in the wake of Notting Hill riots and how um, the black communities were being oppressed by a lot of wings of the Thatcher government. Um, Jean Binterbreeze published her debut poetry collection, Ridding Ravens, in 1989, and since the late 90s, she's regularly published highly acclaimed poetry with Blood Axe. I'd also like to give special mentions to Wilson Harris, Benjamin Zephaniah, Archie Markham, Fred Dagar, Martin Glynn, and Bernadine Evaristo. Cheers. Following that feature, we're going to have a hat-trick of poems from Neary Commander, Daniel Cockrell, and Victoria McNulty. Of chai tea lattes and naan breads. Amma never lets me forget that one day in preschool, when I asked for grilled cheese instead of roti and dal makhani, because I wanted a smell like vanilla or cotton candy, smell like anything but curry. Now I make my own dinners, most of the time just boiled bland salted vegetables or stale tea bags in a Starbucks cup. 
But from time to time, I'll have Amma guide my fingers through my spice cabinet, teaching me how to recreate recipes that I was once ashamed of. How much do I add? I ask. She says you'll know when it's enough. You'll know in your core when the aroma of your food fills you up like the warmth of your people. You'll know when I say that it's not your fault that I raised you in a land that taught you to be ashamed of your own mother. You'll understand now when I say that the irony of it all is that they invaded our soil for our spices and our dyes, and the same people who said you smell like curry now use your elaichi and dalcini to help their businesses flourish. But you know better. You know that chai, tea, and latte all mean the same thing, and you know in your heart that chai, on its own, in its truest, most simple form, is enough. Hello, Roaring Twenties Radio.、Uh, this is a poem from a book called Telescope Moon Man and the Gaga Ladies of Gloom. It was so cold; it began to snow. But the snow was actually sawdust floating down from a nearby building site. Funny how we reduce ourselves to a single emotion: sad, angry, happy, serious, silent, still, like an emoji symbol, as if life is a comment on a Facebook thread. We can't explain ourselves properly if we are all things, if we are complicated, complex. I'm angry, happy. Sad, sick, silent—all at once. I feel everything. I even feel you, who is lost and forgotten on a boat, in a truck, in a tent. You, who have seen horrors in real life that I have only seen on a Facebook thread, and I reduce myself to a single emotion. Stretched straight at the skate park, she leans to your shoulders. Smashed shards shattered round her bubbled feet. Your painless kneecap in trackies. She pale midriff bare, a pair, a menace stare, a first love affair. You whip her hair with a whisper in reflective shades. Mad dog halcyon days. Her eyelashes coy, heavy with nylon glue and underage drinking nonchalance. I gaze on old and wearied, a voyeur lost, a socially distant ghost, haunting a bubble household, empty as a Zoom drinking session. You are both beautiful, thrown into youth, magnetic and unafraid of truth. I see future in you, and hope your humanity grows in all outlying cracks. You're listening to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio, the new show for art, culture, books, poetry, and activism. And this is our Christmas 2020 special when we're having a bit of a look back over the year.、Um, and Rose and I have been chatting about this period that we're about to have,、uh, the festive period. And we know that it's tricky for some people.、Uh, and this year, of all years, obviously it might be extra tricky. So we just wanted to send out send out a bit of love and a bit of solidarity through art, basically. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's like, and I guess we're kind of thinking about all the things that we've missed out on. We've got time at the moment, and people have missed out on things, and or 
things just haven't turned out the way you expect, like people going to university. I guess you've been able to go, but it's not turned out the way you expected and, you know, working from home and maybe not being able to spend time with the people you want to spend time with. Um, so yeah, so it's like a message of solidarity and love and warmth for the Christmas period for everybody really. And hopefully through that we can come through this strange experience and come out the other end <laughs> with yeah. something with something but um so but uh to kick off um my kickback my look back um this is the ink spots with i'm beginning to see the light and i think that this is ella fitzgerald um on who's duetting with them but it doesn't actually say but i think it's her nice I never cared much for moonlit skies I never winked back at fireflies But now that the stars are in your eyes I'm beginning to see the light I never went in for afterglow Or candlelight on the mistletoe but now when you turn the lamp down low, I'm beginning to see the light. Used to ramble through the park, shadow boxing in the dark. Then you came and caused a spark, that's a four-alarm fire now. I never made love by lantern shine. I never saw rainbows in my wine. But now that your lips are burning mine, I'm beginning to see the light. I never cared much for moonlit skies. I never winked back at fireflies. But now that the stars are in your eyes, I'm beginning to see the light. I never went in for afterglow or candlelight on the mistletoe. But now when you turn the lamp down low, I'm beginning to see the light Used to ramble through the park Shadow boxing in the dark Then you came and caused a spark That's a four alarm fire now I never made love by lantern shine I never saw rainbows in my wine but now, now that, that your lips are burning mine, I'm beginning to see the light fall. Beginning to see the light fall. Beginning to see the light. Now that your lips, they are burning on mine, I'm beginning to see the light. Hello and welcome to Roaring Twenties Radio. This time, uh, it's December 2020. We're just um, heading into uh, lockdown Christmas, I guess, for most of us. Um, sending out all the best to everybody and hoping that whatever your season's looking like, that in some way 
um, it will give you what you need. Um, so this time we are pulling together our best bits from the year. I feel like there's so many highlights of this show. Um, but I've chosen two segments, two interviews I did. The first with Cold War Steve, who um, had a Sky Arts documentary come out earlier this month. I think you can still see. Um, talking about lockdown and his work and how his work had developed through Brexit and through the pandemic. And that was a very um, enlightening interview. Hope you enjoy listening to that one again. And then um, I will introduce a conversation with Hetty Judah about her book, Frida, which came out in October. Hi, Cold War Steve, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. How are you doing in this glorious lockdown that we're all experiencing at the moment? Yeah, um, yeah, it's, it, it, we're getting sort of towards breaking point a bit in the house now. Yeah, um, to be honest with you, <laughs> obviously me, and my wife, three daughters. Um, novelty's definitely wore off now. Yeah, um, uh, going a bit crazy, but weather's nice today, which helps. Yeah, it makes Just a huge difference. Shift them into the garden. Well, the oldest one doesn't leave a bedroom, but the others do. Um, so, we, you know, we, we're getting there. All right, brilliant. So I wanted to ask you, um, how did it all start for you? <clears throat> what instigated you to start your project, um, Cold War Steve? Um, so it started in, I think it was March 2016. Um, and I'd always messed around with different things on on. Twitter and had a few different accounts. Um, it was Noel Edmonds hair. Where I just put Noel Edmonds oh, yes, hair on people. Um, do you remember that one? I yeah, that was, that was that was my first um, foray into being reasonably popular. Um, that joke wore thin really quickly, obviously, because there's only so much you can do with that one. Um, <laughs> but then I, my, um, my mental health deteriorated quite. In, in that period um, but coming out of that I decided to, to focus all my um, energy into to something more creative yeah. so I did um, I don't know how I came up with it but I thought putting Phil Mitchell into <laughs> historical Cold War scenes seemed like a, a good idea um, yeah. so I, I, I dug out some old Cold War um, you know Soviet, black and white Soviet pictures of um, Brezhnev and Khrushchev and yeah. Gorbachev or whatever and just put a drunk Phil Mitchell <laughs> in the scene, very kind of crude um, cut and paste app that was on my uh, phone at that time and did a, set up a, a Twitter account for it um, and then it got, got really popular which is a complete, even more popular than Noel Edmund's hair um, <laughs> And it was, it was. Uh, I mean, I got a lot of comfort from making the pictures. You know, it's great therapy, just putting the images out, looking for the images and stuff. Um, but then to have, you know, feedback that was positive as well um, was really helpful. But it, and it just grew from that, really. Yeah, because it's huge. It's absolutely huge. It's so popular. And I feel like now it's almost become like, when something happens, I wait for your reference point. Like, I wait for... 
<laughs> I wait for the comment. I'm just like, I need to see this. I need to see yeah, this. Yeah, because obviously when it, it started, it wasn't meant to be satirical or anything. It was just messing around, really. But um, it, it, it developed more. And as I channel my anxieties into the work, that was reflected, especially with um, Brexit um, and that so. I mean I kind of feel like you became the kind of artist laureate of Brexit people <laughs> because it just it just felt like I guess at that time there wasn't a great amount of recourse for people and certain opinions you people felt very kind of censored and yeah um, yeah I think it gave it reflected a lot of people's thoughts and in a way that a classic satire would and then in combination mm. with that, you've got this kind of wonderful meme quality to it, which it's yeah. almost like taking it to another level. Like, I was just looking at them just now and thinking about, you know, Corbet's the artist studio where he paints the... Yeah. Yeah. And it's he's got all these references in there, like he's, he's kind of like archetyping all these people and making them look like animals and referencing all these different insults for political figures. And if you know, you know, kind of thing. But this is like yes, an updating yeah. of that kind of really kind of deep, deep satire, which is fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, it's that that's um, what it, it really helps me. I don't like I've said before in in interviews. I don't know what on earth I would be doing really to deal with all this if I if I wasn't making my little pictures. It's, I feel very fortunate that I'm in a position that I can. I can channel some of my anger or anxieties into it because there's always a story on the news and it's, mm. um, you know, you think, oh, come on, you know, um, Farage goes to Dover and, and starts harping on about um, migrants and stuff and it's just yeah. like, oh, geez. Um, so then I think, right, okay, let's 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 get one with Farage in just to, to, to make me feel better really more than anything. But... Um, and it is, it is reacting to the news. Uh, there's obviously been a wealth of material over the last, last few years, but certainly with the Brexit stuff, that when it started, there wasn't a great deal of... There was a lot of people that I could tell were, were not pleased with how it how the um, referendum was, was brought about and how it was won in the end. And um, there wasn't a great deal of protest art or protest thoughts really at that stage yeah, um, I think the first thing that, that, that significantly probably was, was when Danny Dyer called David Cameron a twat on, on some bizarre television programme um, which I had fun with afterwards um, yeah. <laughs> but then as things were going along that, that other great things came about like Led by Donkeys and yeah. you know so it, it, it was a, a thing that was growing and, and Brexit end, you know, came to a, a, a close really at, at the end of January, yeah. um, and I'm thinking, well, what do I do now? You know, the same characters are there, and we'll need to be continue to have a light shone on them um, by the likes of myself. Yeah. And then, obviously, coronavirus came out of came upon us, and uh, yeah, yeah. I really loved um, your. One of my favourite ones, I think, of yours, of mine, is the one with Boris Johnson walking through a hospital and it's just like an infinity mirror of babies. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, I mean, Boris is he's a, a gift for, for what I do. Um, but that was, you know, it's, it's just um, the way he's lauded as, um, you know, this great man and this saviour, but people seem to forget, you know, who he truly is. And yeah. the fact he won't actually admit to how many children he's got, obviously that's the reference I'm making there. That's um, outrageous. But <laughs> that was... That was uh, that was a fun one to make. And then I, I did it, and then on the day that the birth was announced, obviously I, I gave it a, a, a retweet just to, yeah. <laughs> as a celebration. <laughs> exactly, just to remind you, keep it out there. But um, yeah. I wanted to ask, and you've got this kind of stable of characters, so it's it's come from Steve McFadden, and it's grown to, I mean, Jacob rees the Pope, Danny Dyer, Kim Jong-un. Um, yeah. There's, there's um, Dominic Cummings. He's a regular. Oh, yeah. You've got yeah. The, <laughs> all these, the GNU, and all these different <laughs> characters that have this increased loaded meaning in all these different settings. And yeah. I just also, well, I wanted to ask you how you decide, when do you decide, right, that person's going to become part of what I do now? Yeah, they, um, they either almost set themselves up to appear in it, so... Um, someone like Greg Wallace will release a picture of himself doing squat for us or something and it's, it's just like well yeah okay <laughs> well, you're in uh, Nick Knowles when he released his album of uh, gravelly voice doing his songs I was like right not having that you're going in but then there's the I mean the political ones they're they're, they're, they're grotesque characters that, that are a gift really you couldn't write them I mean Trump, obviously, Kim Jong-un, um, Boris, uh, and then all of a sudden Cummings comes out of nowhere with these. And just the way they look, you know, they're almost caricatures in themselves that they, they, they personify their, their political leanings and thoughts and everything in, in their facial expressions. So um, it is a, a, a bumper time to have uh, fun with these characters. And some are regular, some are you know, will go and then they'll return. And um, I think that Richard Maisie was photographed walking down the road with a bottle of Corona oh. beer. Oh. And he's coat slung over his shoulder. And I thought, well, you know, people send me that saying, come on. And I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he can always be relied upon, Richard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's that level of celebrity, you know, the, the Greg Wallace um, and... Uh, Richard Madeley types that, that, that feature and then obviously they're used to, to almost send up the, the politicians that are in there as well so it's um, you know I don't want them to be too overtly political I want them to be a bit you know have a tongue in cheek yeah so I think that's what makes them have such broad appeal is that and it also highlights what I think some of these characters would like to move away from, which is none of this stuff happens in isolation. It's not just yeah. these kind of malleable stories that you can just drop in and out of, you know, history, news. It There is a context that it all happens in. in that. Yeah, yeah. But, and I was wondering it, also, like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, 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 I was, I was just going to say, it, it, um, and the the media in this country obviously for, for quite some time now it's difficult to, to, to see any um, negative press against um, you know 
Boris Johnson's government. Mm. Um, that's why, you know, I think well, the work I'm doing is, is, is crucial in a way, just to get that other, other side across to people, really. Absolutely, yeah. Exactly, because as you say, it was, it, was, it was difficult to make sense of the news and whether people were talking about this kind of post-truth stuff and yeah. all these oh, kind yeah. of terms yeah. flying around um, and thankfully that seems to have all died down a little bit now for now yeah but um, I wanted to ask you as well like some of the paintings that you've um, used in your work like Hieronymus Bosch and um, Nighthawks mm. the Hopper and I wondered how yeah. do you have like paintings that you've got in mind um, that you'd like to use at some point or is it all just very organic it is organic, but I do, I think the first, I never um, use backdrop, backdrop searching is, is my favourite thing really, I've got, um, you know, files and files of, of backgrounds that I, I like to use and they're carefully chosen really and, and um, so that it adds to the whole um, concept of the piece. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, but the paintings definitely, I think the Nighthawks was the first one. I mean, that's a painting obviously that's been um, used loads of times by people, but I um, chose that one. And then I think Hopper is someone I return to because he almost provides a, an empty set, an empty stage for, for me to yes. put the people in. Yes. Um, but especially now in, in um, you know, the lockdown and everything, his pictures really resonate, the, the, the kind of starkness and the, the loneliness almost of, of, of the painting. So yeah. they just lend themselves really well. And someone like Bosch is, you know, I've tried to, when I've set out doing the big, grander one, so I, my aim was to make a picture that looked like a Bosch, but featuring, obviously, photo montages. So there'd be kind of different, sub-stories going on in the corner and symbolism and mm -hmm. you know, quite nightmarish and, and dreamlike. So, um, yeah, they're, they're Bosch and Brugler, the two that I return to for, for reference points quite a lot. They definitely seem to um, work very, very well around the time of, well, around the kind of the stretched out time of Brexit and all its... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, especially, I mean, the, the, the Brugel... Um, Triumph of Death, I think it's called. It's a huge painting that I used to make my uh, Brexit hellscape, which yes. became a very successful jigsaw, <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> which was a lot of fun. Um, and that, that's done really well. It, it's a lot of people. Were, and I thought of people on Christmas Day doing this jigsaw featuring all these <laughs> strange characters of, yeah. of mine and Bruegel's. Um, but yeah, that's so that something like that works so well. Yeah, with, just with it's just the perfect. message I'm trying to get across. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And then I um, and you it's because it's gone from being like mainly a internet based kind of endeavour to and it's now grown. You've got jigsaws selling work, calendars, and you've been having shows. And so I wanted to. Yeah. I know that you've got. Um, You've got an online show, you, me, and Cold War Steve. Could you tell That's me a little right, bit yeah. about that, please? Pandemic proofed. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I've done bits and pieces, uh, exhibitions and, and things, but I've never had a, like a, my own proper exhibition. So um, Carl Goslin, who's my manager and mentor type person, yeah. came up with the idea of, rather than having a, 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 a usual gallery exhibition, that was what I wanted to do first of all, get a big gallery and do these big billboard size images in there. And, um, we're thinking, you know, I haven't, galleries are very well good, but I've not come into the, this art world through the usual route. Mm. Um, it does feel I've, I've, I've jumped in from a completely different angle, really, and it's Twitter's where I've, I've, I've grown the, the, the brand. Yes. And a bit, um, but the the idea of Carl had was to have a free exhibition that anyone could print out and have themselves. So we wanted across the country, people were sending in uh, locations. That, you know, could just be a shed or a yeah. garage or a, a, a um, the best one we had was a, a man. Well, one of the best ones was a mannequin graveyard. <laughs> there's just thousands of dismembered mannequins in piles and stuff like that and, it, and we were like that is so perfect isn't it you know just have the work put up there um but a lot of community based centers as well which was great that's the, the one thing we wanted was um you know repurposed uh, community buildings and just to get 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 some some people involved and and, and it was great and it was that was going to happen first of april but then obviously um we we had to postpone that because it wasn't possible but we we put it online so the all the exhibition pieces are, are now free to download um still and print out for a, for a later date whenever it's safe to do but but we've we've got an online um exhibition where i put the pictures in a virtual gallery again it's not a gallery it's, it's through the woods so it's like abandoned cars in in the woods and cool. things like that um so that's the the exhibition online. Right, really, and you've also got um, Benny's Babies. Am I saying it right? <laughs> yeah, Benny's Babies. <laughs> babies. Um, okay. Babies. It's quite a horrible word, isn't it? But that's what a lot of Birmingham people call babies. <laughs> um, and that was yeah, I and mean, that's kind of the pinnacle, really, of, of what I've done. Um, you know, I'm live in Birmingham, raised in Birmingham and love have loved Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery for so many years. Yeah. Um, never dreamed that I'd actually be having something exhibited there. It's just beyond my wildest dreams. So when it came up to be um, to be to be done and that was due to be unveiled eighteenth of April, so obviously that didn't happen. Mm. Um, but we've released it online. Fantastic. So Three commissions, so there's still two to be released mm. that, that are using um, the, the online resource that the museum have, have got, which is all their artworks are free for people to, to download and, and have a look at. So the point was for me to choose stuff from their works and incorporate into my own yeah. um, to, to get people to have a look and, and utilise the, the, the service that we've got. So that's we released that online. Um, and that got a good response, but of course, when the gallery is, you know, eventually open, it, it will be uh, unveiled there, big two meter wide 
things that really uh, nice gilt, uh, gilt frame. Be, it's going to be wonderful. Okay, <laughs> wonderful. No, I, and um, and kind of what I don't. It's it's, it's just all round. It just seems like a kind of perfect fit. And yeah, I know you have such a nice art scene in Birmingham. It's nice to see get have it. You know. Yeah. On that. Yeah, definitely. And that's you know, conscious of because um, there wasn't a brief as such. It was just for me to use some of their images in some work there wasn't specifically a brief but I thought yeah it would be nice to do the main one as, as a, um, in the vein of my Edinburgh piece really which is the first positive was, that was um, Harold um, blowing his tuba and it yeah. was a <laughs> massive beach scene and that was the first positive piece I've ever done mm. so and I thought I'd like to because that was they sent images of where the, the um, piece was going to be and it was outside the lovely um, gallery too. And I thought, I can't put my usual dystopian, you know, yeah. hellscape type well, scene there. Something. It just wouldn't look right. So yeah. I thought, right, let's do something positive. Yeah. So um, <laughs> it was just every, you know, positive, uh, inspirational people okay. that I put on there. And I, I, from that, I, I thought I'd do one... Um, Birmingham and it's um, and I was conscious obviously to, to make sure I include a lot of the brilliant artists that, that are around now in Birmingham and also um, from the recent past as well so that's, yeah. that was great. Wonderful, wonderful. Hello this is Amma Rose welcoming you back to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. That was me chatting to Cold War Steve earlier in the year and now we're going to have a track this is Rufus Wainwright with What Are You Doing on New Year's Eve? Could be. 
sitting at home, uh, listening to the radio with a glass of something. Um, but back to our best of show. Now we are going to hear from the art critic and author Hetty Judah. And she spoke to me earlier this year about her book on Frida Kahlo, which came out in October and is available um, in bookshops and via Lawrence King Publishing. Um, it's fascinating to hear Hetty speak about her take on the wonderful artist Frida Kahlo um please enjoy reading the book I felt like I was learning so much about um the historical context as you mentioned and it made me think I really felt like it was as much as it was a book about her it was a book about politics what it was like to be living amongst the politics in Mexico and in the United States at that time what what drew you to this kind of thread? I think it was partly, you know, she and Diego were very, very politically involved. And I think that more than anything really shaped their career. And you, you have them living in the United States for quite a long period. And part of the reason for that is because of the shifting political tide in Mexico and the fact that they couldn't perhaps get work at a certain point or that they were being kind of um, bitched about by other communists who said they were accepting commissions from gringo capitalists. Mm. I mean, politics was a huge part of her life. She met Diego through her membership of the Communist Party um, as a young woman. And when she became very ill um, towards the end of her life and she was pretty much bedridden, the thing that she became very fervent about was wanting to be a good communist and worrying about the fact that as an artist she wasn't useful to the cause. Mm. Um, her last public appearance was at a as a political demonstration. And alongside all of the artwork that she and Diego were making, you know, they were doing an enormous amount of quite active political work. They were working with refugees, they were working with labour organisations, they were making sure that people had money, they had making sure people had you know, could get home to their families when they needed to. So it, it was it was a large part of her life and so I think it was important to give a sense of the context yeah. in which that was happening. It's like real grassroots activism there. Mm. Yeah. And the the other thing that struck me which you also touched on, um, was was there, yeah, was the amount of pain that physical pain that she endured throughout her life. And and the kind of and how it you know, she's this at once she's this strong you know, not people aren't, you know, singular, you know, but I got this impression of this kind of like amazingly charismatic, intelligent, talented, strong, vivacious person. At the same time, 
somebody who maybe had their power taken away in different ways in which in ways which must have been quite difficult to deal with as a person with that personality yeah I think it's I mean it, it must have been so frustrating because all of the things that she wanted to do became difficult to her just I mean even as a very young woman when she was first in San Francisco and she wanted to walk through the city and she was getting these because she'd had polio as a child she was getting terrible ulceration on her foot and so it was very very painful to walk and you know she wanted to travel but sitting on a train for a long time was making her back very painful because she'd had this terrible bus accident as a teenager and you there's this there's a bit in it where she's just started a relationship with the um, the American sculptor, Osama Noguchi. Mm. And he talks about, you know, going with her to, to bars and to nightclubs. And he said she loved to dance. She wanted, she wanted to do everything that she couldn't do. Um, and I, I think th- yeah, there were clearly moments where her spirit did fail her a bit. But yeah. I think she was just um i mean she she really was in quite extreme pain and she and she just had this spirit to keep going but she did take an enormous amount of drugs and she did drink very heavily as well i think we should uh, that be helps clear about that. many many <laughs> facets of pain yeah <laughs> uh no i think there was i think that was that i can't remember who, who it was but there was one i think it was diego's biographer that was said that she drank a bottle of hennessy every day Oh my at a certain God. point when she was tiny as well she was very very slight so that was a lot and she also was taking a lot of painkillers okay. um and definitely you know kind of i think it was in a way it almost became the drugs and the alcohol that kind of ended up getting in the way of her spirit that you can definitely see towards the end of her life in her notebook that she's getting her mind's kind of wandering and she's not painting sharply because she's such a precise yeah artist welcome back this is Emma Rose on Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio and that was me speaking to Hetty Judah earlier this year about her book Frida following Emma Rose's segment we have some poems by Sharifa Energy and then Lisa Lux wish I could write poetry to my grandmother in Gujarati weave intricate stories and memories share acknowledgement of her a blessing in my life Illustrate all stories etched in my story. Half-term excitement as a child. Logs of books selected at Highfield's library. Hidden away tucked into a grocery bag. Skipping. The waft and aroma of her cooking in the kitchen. Better make it before 10.30. Gliding my feet down Galaxy Walk. Just in time to eat fresh chapatis. Mum made rotis too. There was an extra special taste of Barbie made by Ma's hands. Her delicate wrinkled hands carving circles before placing dough onto a dowel. Wrist flicking, flower inflating, palms rotating, chapati flipping. Resting elbows on the kitchen table. Eyes wide, hunger staring. Hands washed, tongue salivating. Watching as she placed piping round hot chapatis onto flower decorated plates. Chairs scraping the kitchen floor. Pushing in, about to tuck in. Butter spread by her flower, glittered hands. Chapatis rolled like ancient scrolls. Ma's recipe nobody could imitate. For the taste lay in the buds of her fingertips. Later, her granddaughter learnt in her youth she made chapati for whole villages. How much of a blessing it has been to eat morsels from Ma's hands. Onions hissing on the stove. 
shedding their skin to her flute at the crack of dawn. Gluttonous rituals, three sittings on Eid day, in the afternoon at dinner when uncles and cousins came, licking fingers, gobbling two lambariani plates, no rice grain visible, fingers, masala, stained. Okay, coming up next, we have something from Lisa Lux. She's a writer, performer, activist of British Syrian heritage. She's been broadcast on the BBC, Vice, TEDx. She's won loads of awards. She was the UK's top four queer poets for Diva magazine. As Matt mentioned earlier, she has a new pamphlet out, Trust Your Outrage, a poetry chapbook that explores the body as a site of protest, including poems on gender, sexuality, menstruation, and being mixed heritage. What Matt didn't mention, which I find extremely interesting, is it exists entirely in the economy of sisterhood, which is to say that everybody who financially benefits from this project is woman or non-binary. Plus a pound from every sale is donated to Black Women's Mental Health Projects. It's available, uh, sorry, Black Women's Mental Health Project, just tea. It's available from the shop on her website, www.lisalux.com. Let's hear a little bit from Lisa Lux now. Sisterhood is not friendship, it's a woman akin, related to you by the pain you've been in. When I say sister, I do not mean friend, I mean a woman complete, whose cracks never need mend. When I say sister, I mean, I echo the gong of your moon and giddy or mad, you're safe to do you when I'm in the room. When I say sister, it means hold my hand. Even though you don't like me and you'll never understand why my humour is wicked and my manner is crass, why I'm still immature and my temper is fast. When I say sister, it doesn't mean that you make me relax, it means you make me uncomfortable. But I welcome that. When I say sister, it means you have the power to make me hurt. But I trust. All I receive from you will give me a lesson to learn. When I say sister, it means this promise. I'll keep working on my strength and from it I'll become the warrior, the medicine and the mama. Because one day, just in case you ever need me when I say sister it means I'll be ready. Okay so let's go in a little closer and my first author that I want to highlight is Heidi James. Now I've been following Heidi James's work since way back in the day and this new book The Sound Mirror is an absolute triumph. Heidi James lives in London and lectures at Kingston University. Her poetry, essays and short stories have appeared in numerous publications, Mixlexia, Galley Beggar Press, Dazed and Confused. I've been a great fan of Heidi's work since she first started publishing and I've literally read all of her books. This latest novel, The Sound Mirror is a triumph. It's a spellbinding book. I find her writing vivid, visceral, dark, 
powerful. Her writing pulls me in. It is highly addictive. The Sound Mirror, it spans three family generations from British occupied India to southern England through intimately rendered characters. Heidi James has crafted a haunting and moving examination of class, war, violence, family and shame from the rich details of ordinary lives. It, I really couldn't, I couldn't put it down. I absolutely love this book. Let's have a little exclusive clip of Heidi James reading from The Sound Mirror. Good morning, lovely Selena. This is Heidi James and I'm going to read a very short extract from my new novel, The Sound Mirror. She's going to kill her mother today, but she's no monster. She's not the villain. It's a beautiful day for it, winter sharp, the sky an unfussy blue. She's taken two days holiday from work and hired a fancy car, a Mercedes, essential for this journey, where appearances and a quick getaway are everything. The man gave her a discount when she told him where she was going. The 200 mile round trip will be a breeze. She's dressed carefully too, just jeans and a shirt, but they're expensive, well cut, understated, but a signal to those in the know. So here we are, driving down to be face to face with her for the last time. Of course, we're along for the ride. How could we not? It's been a long time coming, and our fault, we should say. Funny that, speaking with one voice now, agreeing with each other. But yes, our fault and all the others, tangled up with poisons and infections and rottenness. Our mothers and mothers' mothers containing us, we, in their bellies. Seeds of each in the cells and the breath, before the splitting in two, the doubling like an atomic bomb. So now she holds us all, a rabble of ancestors, pressing up from inside against her skin. And she contains the next generation too, if she wanted. If she can bear to, bear it, bear a child. Who could blame her if not? But for now, she's a sum of all us women, the total. She is what's left. And that was Heidi James reading from The Sound Mirror. Okay, yeah, coming up next we've got Iona Lee. She's a poet, illustrator and spoken word performer from Scotland. It says here Selena Gordon forced her to be a poet one snowy night in Edinburgh. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to remark on that. And she's been hard at work down the poetry mines, mining diamonds ever since. She's widely published and has appeared on both television and radio. Iona has performed her work all over the UK and Europe, representing Scotland at the World Slam Championships in Paris. Her debut pamphlet, which is incredible by the way, was published by Polygon in 2018. It went on to be shortlisted for a Saboteur Award and a Saltire Award. Iona also fronts a beat poetry band called Acolyte. Acolyte, sorry, Acolyte. Let's have a little bit from Iona Lee up in Scotland. Hello lovelies. Iona Lee here uh, from all the way in Glasgow. I'm going to read a brand new poem. It's not been published anywhere or anything. Uh, it's called anamnesis, which is a beautiful word that means memories of a past life. He opened with a kiss, his tongue a little hors d'oeuvre before leaving for the gym. I nibbled it, suddenly overcome with ennui. Is this what it has come to? Exercising on purpose. Climbing hills, just to climb back down again. Sometimes I feel like a babe station girl, but no one is calling. 
Someone please tell me what they want me to do. Sometimes I feel like a video game character, but my player has left the room to make a cheese sandwich. Sometimes I wander aimlessly through Debenhams. I want to feel so alive. I want to own a small fusion restaurant. I want to play the tambourine in a Brian Jonestown Massacre tribute band. I would much rather dance on a pirate ship, the black and pearl drop rain bouncing like a giant's broken necklace all across the deck than answer the question, where do you see yourself in five years? Because honestly, I chiefly see myself five years ago. Like if only we could play still, how we did when we were kids. Hold your hand up to your ear. The sea is calling. I will be the mummy and you will be the daddy and we can make a palace of this fallen tree. We just need two bits of imagination to rub together. Sometimes I think of all the flats that I have lived in. They constitute the shape of times gone by. We mistook the city for a moon, found ourselves enthusiastically blue-tacking, making bohemian palaces of whatever squat we'd landed in. Everything smelt new. Sometimes I think that I would do it all again, but shinier. Like how the Renaissance redid the ancient world, or how the 90s did the 60s again, with ecstasy. The tragic thing is that I, I quite enjoy yoga and I can't be fucked with techno anymore. Next up, I'd like to share a poem from one of my favourite poets, Joelle Taylor. This is something she's written in lockdown. Joelle Taylor is an award-winning poet, playwright, author, editor. She's performed across the UK as well as internationally um, uh, with, with the British Council on solo projects across Europe. She's read in diverse range of venues from the 100 Club, the O2 Arena, the Royal Festival Hall, Ronnie Scott's, the Royal Court. Her um, biog is so impressive. Her most recent collection is Song my enemy taught me which is published by outspoken here's joelle with a new piece which i um, really love this is called a very english apocalypse a very english apocalypse one corona visa having repelled foreign bodies foreign bodies invaded our bodies now foreign Slipping between border rails, they drifted over high walls, seeped beneath the carpets of Parliament, teaching us the anatomy of loss, the universal theory of alone, the mathematics of survival, the weight of air, how visa it all is. We should have checked our temperatures years ago. Two, a very English apocalypse. This fever empire, this other, this better, all rogue, all unjoin, all apart this width. We have invaded ourselves and queued to do it. What is the distance between two people walking away from one another? Hacking up headlines, a cough of white crows circle the city's bloodstream. And two friends walk too close together, their kisses unexploded. The birds teach us new songs, and we follow, 
reading closely typed manuscripts in Crow, and we follow, oh look, and now there are dolphins in Venice canals, goats in Landudno gardens, and lions reporting the news in Moscow. In Britain, the bulldog has returned, but each of our doors are closed. Hear him now, his midnight howl, the sound of wrong, an ambulance bawling. Three, the empire of us. And all of our beds, desert islands, the empires of us. I lie there, my body foreign, no longer speaking the same language. One of my hands does not understand the other, and my blood ticks. And then there is you, my darling. We are two dogs tethered, biting at our own umbilical. And there are seven cracks across the living room ceiling, darling. The windows are laboratory slides, darling, darling. Teach me the shape of your happy. Teach me Galway, 1974. Teach me this love wassailed between tower blocks. Teach me an earthquake of hand clap. Teach me to dance on the edge of everything. My darling, it took this to show us the air. Welcome back to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. I'm Selena Godden and we're here in my kitchen with Nikita Gill. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to see your lovely face again. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> thank you so much and it's so lovely to see you, Selena. Oh. It's made my day. Oh, it's made my life. <laughs> So um, anyone that's new to Nikita, Nikita Gill is a British Indian writer and artist living in the south of England with a huge online following. Her words have captivated hearts and minds all over the world. Nikita is ambassador for National Poetry Day and is a regular speaker at literary events. Nikita, um, I don't even know where to begin. Your books include Great Goddesses, Wild Embers, Fierce Fairy Tales. Your soul is a river your heart is the sea slam where hope comes from but the book that i've got here sitting in front of me is the girl and the goddess it is a beautiful book so many different styles and feelings and voices in there it's very you it's very hopeful it's very beautiful it comes from a place of such light and it was a joy to have it find it um on my doormat and to have it in my possession and i love it thank you okay goodbye <laughs> That's the end of the interview. No, I'm going to, quite seriously though. Um, let, let's do a proper interview. Although we are friends, I'm going to I'm going to try and be a bit more professional. When did you decide to become a writer? What I mean is, was there a moment when you realised this was who you are and what you will do with your life on earth? Um, I was 12 years old. I remember very well as well because my grandfather used to tell me a lot of stories from when he was young. And we have um, a history like with partition and 1984 where there was a the 1984, but there was like a Sikh genocide in India. And it's a very traumatic history. And the only people that can tell me that history now are my grandparents. And the older that they were getting, the more nervous I was getting that we were going to lose those stories. And so I put his story down, the one which happened during partition. And my mom saw it, she really loved it. And she sent it to someone, you know, because she she's 
one of the things that my mom has done for me is that she wanted people to read her daughter. She's so proud of me. She wanted people to read her little daughter's work. And someone liked it from, they were a journalist and they happened to publish it in one of the national newspapers because it's just a 12 year old story about her grandfather. So that's when I knew I was like, I have to, I want to be a writer. That's what I want to do with my life. Oh, that's so beautiful. So the latest book, um, can you tell me that just for anyone, can you just give, give, tell anyone just like roughly where are we going with this book? The Girl and the Goddess. To me, it just conjures up just by the title alone, it's, 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 I'm not going to say anymore. You, you tell, you tell. <laughs> so The Girl and the Goddess is a novel in verse, and I'm really excited about it because it's my debut novel in verse, and it had to be like this. And when I say that, I mean, this is a really personal story. It's a story of a little girl called Paro, who is Kashmiri, and to be Kashmiri is a really political thing, and it always has been. And against a backdrop of war and terrorism and partition, which was the um, partition basically that separated India and Pakistan into two separate countries and the violence that it caused. And we follow this little girl through her life and the people that come into her life who help her, but also the women in her family that she has such a close bond and relationship with, which is her mother and her grandmother and those bonds between women and female friendship. And you see her go through her life and, and navigate all of these things, all whilst talking about the effects of colonialism on a little girl when she's studying at school, how history is like physics. It's not like fiction where you can just turn a page and walk away. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. So, so can you give us a little teaser? Can you read us a little bit from yes, the book? Yes, of please, course. Please. Um, I'm going to read one of my favourite poems from the book. It's called Mama. Mama is fire, is a goddess without her powers in a world of masculinity gone awry, is mystical despite them trying to tell her she is not. Mama is the second word I learn, though she is prouder of my first because I named God. Mama treats my father's parents with kindness, even though they treat her with spitefulness. Calls me her miracle in a world that has let her down with a thousand little indignities. Reads me stories of Jhansi Kirani and the goddess Durga, eliminating greed before fairy tales of Panchatantra. Mama says, Paro, you will not have to fight like I did because I will fight for you. Says, I married a better man than, your than my father ever was and I did it for you so you could grow. Mama doesn't let anyone discipline me under the premise of one day she will be a wife. Mama teaches me early. Despite what they will try to teach you, girl is not a dirty word. Girl is power. Girl is fury. Girl is never give up. The world cannot break me. Oh, so lovely. Thank you. Oh. For the final two pieces, we have my commissioned poem for the UN Fly the Flag for Human Rights project, followed by a stunning collaboration between Selena Godden and Anna Phoebe on Selena's poem, While Justice Waits. We're led to believe that we get what we deserve and failure is caused by individuals as opposed to any systems. And if we slip between the cracks, we're conditioned to disappear, forgetting the most basic of human rights. Friday morning, Elephant and Castle 
they queue around the block, heads slightly bowed, bags beneath their eyes, vouchers in open hands which used to cling to pride, not knowing what they'll be eating till they finally get inside. And the social stigma is out on parade, the food bank generation, rumbling stomachs echo through cupboards at ends of tethers. Monday lunchtime, Glasgow, the school canteen. Ketchup-coloured cheeks caught red-handed stealing sachets. I'm taking them home to make soup, he said. Eight years old, with tears in his eyes. In a playground in Preston, there are holes in shoes. In Taunton, there are threadbare trousers. Wednesday evening, near Worthing, in the hotel lobby. The receptionist takes a complaint that half the hotel are homeless. Emergency funds to save them from streets and spreading COVID-19. But for some, it's been decades in doorways with no form of daily routine. And if they can afford it now, then why not before? And these scenes that we're accustomed to in 2020, just part of everyday life in modern Britain, they all represent abuses of basic human rights. And if we truly learn to accept it, we've already lost the fight. There they go again, filling your mouth with their name. There they go again, adding more weight to your burden. There they go again, giving you all the anxiety, whilst telling you not to panic, when the panic is rooted in centuries of there they go again, there they go again. There they go again, contradicting their own rules, or double speak, double standards. There they go again, your dead are statistics, your ghosts live in hashtags. There they go again, getting away with murder, but calling it anything else. There they go again, doing nothing, as you're vulnerable and sick and the dying need all your love and care and your living need all of your focus, energy and time. There they go again, filling your plate with their jobs and the work they should do as your elected leaders. There they go again, dominating your thoughts so no work can get done. There they go again, grimacing on the front page, hogging the limelight with this theatre of performative cruelty. There they go again, suffocating light and hope, like a pillow held fast over the face of the kicking and struggling truth. There they go again, consuming all the oxygen and rewriting history. There they go again, like it's all about them. But it is because of them, and it is in spite of them. There they go again, obscuring the facts, blurring the edges, blinkering the horse, filtering the picture.
And it is not the names of the dead, nor the names of the nurse, not the name of the innocent, but their name in your mouth. How can it be that when you wake in the night, wailing and mourning and hurting, they are marching on your tongue, they are renting your insomnia? There they go again, using your anguish as garnish, using your defence as attack, using your fear to divide you, using your rage to pass draconian laws, using your pain to sell shit back to you, using your grief to decorate newspapers, using your anger to kill you. Because there they go again, casting an ass in the lead role, the wealthy politicians in the spotlight, the hideous clown gets top billing, the monster as the headline act, your horror gets a walk-on part, your morning cries are extras, your fury is the chorus line, your humanity the supporting cast, and justice waits in the wings, and justice waits in the wings. There they go again, 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 there they go again. And justice waits in the wings. Hello and welcome back to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. That was our best bits of 2020. Um, obviously there's loads that we didn't include that we also absolutely love. Um, Thanks for listening. And please, you know, if you want to look back at our past shows, you can head to Anchor FM and find them there. Uh, We've got, I think, 13 shows now. Lucky 13 for you to listen back over. And um, yeah, thanks for listening and hope to see you in 2021. Yeah, and as always, we've been tweeting out the links to the songs or artists that we've been featuring. So please, if you give them a follow, if you can afford to, buy their albums and buy the books. We always tweet links to the to be able to buy the albums directly. Um, so yeah, show your love. Like I say, even if it's just a follow or a share, get involved. We're trying to build up a nice big family of Roaring Twenties radio artists. Um, and obviously, thank you to everybody that sent in a recording or did a live performance or did an interview as well. Um, we're nothing without our content so thank you so much for everybody that's given up the time and shared the work um yeah it's it's been amazing really just to look back at it it's lovely yeah it's wonderful and so it's like thank you from myself from selena and from me (laughs) and yeah uh roaring 20s radio it's at roaring 20s radio with a two zero s instead of a full word twitter instagram facebook and like amarose said uh, anchor.fm slash roaring 20s radio as well yeah thanks very much for your support yeah thanks for listening bye